Lord, uh, it's been a sweet, sweet time of worship. Father, now we ask that you would convince us that the love of Christ is in us. Father, I pray that I would not in any way burden anyone with some sort of new law and some new obligation, some new duty, that flowing from the one who was most dutiful, flowing from the one who was completely obedient, flowing from the one who did it all, our second Adam, that we would see how amazing our Savior is, and we would respond and say, how can I not? How can I not? So uh, deepen, Lord, deepen our understanding of grace, and uh, help me, Lord. I cry out to you. These words are feeble, weak, and unable to change lives. And so empower them with a power from heaven itself through the blood of Jesus. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Fascinating text, verses 16 and 17. I really do want you to kind of focus on this and see this. I do want you to have great gospel security this morning. I do not want to burden you with yet another law, obligation, commitment, duty. As I prayed, I want you to see more deeply how you have been loved. And I want you to say, how can I not? How can I not? Respond to the self-giving love of God found in the cross. And specifically today, your viewpoint, your perspective on other people. Your perspective on other people. Okay, so I want to just, uh, just by way of introductory thoughts here, I don't know why I'm curious about this. I have two introductory thoughts that sort of intrigue me. Maybe they'll intrigue you. Um, I read a, a book years ago called The Cult of the Amateur, and there's a few other books very similar to it. One's called The Death of Expertise, and this is all about the blogosphere and social media, and everyone has an opinion today. In fact, uh, um, we really uh, really have an, a kind of an authority crisis in our culture today. Uh, institutions. Uh, the, the, I imagine we all listen to our banks, I guess. <clears throat> when a bank says something, we pretty much don't have a case against uh, our bank, unless you're a really good banker or something. Uh, So there's not very many institutions that have sort of institutional authority. We look at our politics today, we all lament, roll our eyes. Uh, We've had scandals in the uh, the clergy. Um, And so where's the institutional authority? And so there's been this growing with social media, sort of like this sense of, well, I don't know, I, I can blog about my latest recipe and I can blog about global warming, and I can blog about... And so we, we have this growing sense that people have sort of taken on new roles, that they don't have to go get an advanced degree before they would ever speak on that. Well, they, I've got an opinion on this, right? Well, the Corinthians are very similar this way. They've, they've sort of got this idea, well, who needs Paul anyway? I mean, oh, we, we've got this figured out. We've got the kind of authorities we need. Uh, why do we need this prescribed authority, this... this living, breathing apostle. And so in a sense, they've kind of bought into the cult of the, cult of the amateur. <clears throat> um, uh, apostolic authority has sort of been overruled by the mob <laughs> in a bit. Uh, that's kind of what's going on in the Corinthian church here. Paul is, Paul is saying his apostolic authority, he, he, he's saying is good for you. It's better for you than any other form of authority. That's what he's saying. Now, he's also not saying, uh, I'm a big deal. Uh, you, should really, uh, you should really esteem 
me personally. He, he's not saying that. He's actually saying you should esteem the role that I am playing, the office, right? So a little important distinction. So, uh, so we do live at a time sort of the cult of the amateur. And um, so people have lots of opinions. I read recently that WordPress alone has some 600 million blogs. Are you reading them all? Are you catching up? Are you being caught up? 600, 600 million blogs. So we have a lot of opinions and thoughts out there. <laughs> wow. How did our grandparents ever live without blogging? How did they ever do it? How did they ever have a sense of self, a sense of esteem, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity? Someone once said, I blog, therefore I am. Someone also said, I post, therefore I am. Well, the Corinthians certainly have strong opinions. Another aspect of our current society is that there's a kind of new tribalism that's underway. Increasingly, people are being splintered into tribes, political, ethnic, religious. Now, I'm not an expert at this at all, so lest I join the cult of the amateur here. But being enlightened from sort of some progress, people, identity politics and other, other group, people are sort of trying to figure out how can they, how can they uh, deal with the rapid change that's underway, globalization, economic changes, the economic stress. Globalization has brought us closer to cultures that we might not normally have interacted with. And what's happened is that these worldviews are clashing and there's a disdain and a contempt developing for those who are different than us. Now, solutions are proposed. I read a New York Times article earlier this year that proposed that, well, yes, there is this hatred, there is this despair, there is this disdain, identity-seeking, castigating of other groups. What will save us? <laughs> well, this particular author said, well, what will actually save us is an evolutionary trait. I didn't know this at all. And that somehow this evolutionary trait will magically kick in. Magically is my own interpretation. Will kick in whereby we will learn to walk in another person's shoes. I didn't think evolution taught that. I think the Vikings had it right. That's more of evolution stuff. Vikings with, you know, spears and the whole deal and longboats. That's evolutionary trait if you think, if I'm thinking right, maybe I'm not. But humanity, in fact, this author even used the word blessed as they described evolution, which I thought that was interesting. But that humanity has been blessed with this trait and that the empathy gene will save us. How about that? So, well, we can wrap it up. That's a short sermon, and uh, we're all done. But the anguish in the human experience, this tribalism, this Cain versus Abel stuff is addressed in scripture and addressed in the cross and I'm putting forth once again that the cross has the power to change our very shallow and disdainful view of others the question for the Corinthians is our question will we submit to an authority structure that is an apostolic authority structure coming to us in the scriptures today. We don't have uh, living, breathing apostles in our day, but we have their words. Why were apostles so important? Apostles could correct a church correctly. Apostles could speak 
gospel language that was correct, reflective of the cross. They could correct people. They were representatives of the risen Christ and authorized in a unique office for that first century. Of course, we believe that the apostolic spirit has been embodied in the scriptures, so we are an apostolic church. We trust in the scriptures. So in the cross, there is this apostolic hope. Paul is expressing an apostolic hope for the Corinthians. Corinthians, by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 talks about how divided the Corinthians were. I am of Christ, I am of Apollos. Then there was a super religious group, really, really pious group, said, I, you know, I follow Christ, right? That was the, that was the group, yeah? And they, all these different splintering groups. And Paul called them, he described them that they were viewing people in a carnal way. The cross, in the cross, there is a revolution underway. If you are a believer in Christ, this revolutionary way of thinking and seeing people is already underway in you. And this new way of thinking comes to you by grace. So just by a quick overview, let's look at some questions that I hope will lead to clarification. And then let's consider some of these implications. All right, verse 15, take a look at that. And Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 15 is a gospel statement. And the implication, you're drawn in to this compelling love. He died for me, gave his life for me, and now he's drawing out of me a response. A compelling way of of living differently is underway. What necessarily follows And look at verse 16. From now on, therefore. That's a conclusion from verse 15. From now on, therefore. This is a gospel implication. Therefore, we view people differently. Paul surrenders in light of being loved by God in Christ. He surrenders something. He's now living for the one who gave himself for Paul, and Paul is surrendering something. What's he surrendering? His assessments of people. His sizing, his sizing people up. His reviewing of people's accomplishments. Perhaps his view of their race. What side of the tracks uh, are they from? His evaluations have all been swallowed up in the cross. And the cross brings this up. Of course, one simple way of thinking about this is when God saved you, he wasn't looking for a Norwegian. He wasn't looking for uh, someone from Spain or someone from, with European uh, background. He wasn't looking for someone of particular persuasion in any way or another. He wasn't looking for someone with intellect. Sorry if you're offended. He wasn't looking for someone with any kind of aspirations in life, someone who could help out the cause. God did not see a condition in you that drew you to him. Anyone humbled here? That's the humbling effect of grace. When Paul says in verse 15 that he died for all, that means that he died without any respect to them in their flesh, which is coming up. 
Christ reveals something about the world and all its attachments. All that it thinks is important is vanity. The Jews of Jesus' day had no role for Jesus, had no no place for him. Evidencing above and beyond proof that he was the Messiah, the Jews had no role for him. He had exposed them, exposing the religious leaders as phonies. The Romans had no role for him and considered him a rabble-rouser. Jesus died with these saving purposes for you. That you would begin a new way of living in reference to other people and have no regard for their status, achievements, race, or culture. It didn't matter at all as God looked at you, nor does it matter at all as you look at others if you really embrace the cross. The self-giving love described in verse 15 kills our pride. Now, it was our evaluation, let's put ourselves in the crowd that crucified Jesus, it is our evaluation, our fleshly evaluation of Jesus that killed him. We're caught in the act. And this opens up our heart to our Heavenly Father. His death roots out our prejudice. His death exposes our prejudice, but also roots it out. This self-centered, ego-centered viewpoint. Now, what is it? Now, I am asking various questions to hopefully bring some clarification here. Number two, what does it mean to no longer view people according to the flesh? Do you see verse 16? We now, for now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Now, track with me. We can all, I believe, get this. To know someone after the flesh means, first and foremost, to discern them through your flesh. Your grid. It means that you come with an evaluation of the importance of the person. You 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 see them. You evaluate them. How their clothes look. What their what their status is. What can, what can they do for you? Are they worth talking to? Are they worth interacting with? Will they will they in, enhance your reputation? There's this evaluation, and it's firing quickly as we interact with someone. Your flesh is this fallen part of you. If you're born again here through God's sheer grace, there is this part of you that you still carry around with you. I have it, you have it. It doesn't improve, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't improve. There's this old part of you, the flesh. Uh, When you are, some of you, I see a lot of young people here, dynamos, catch the world by the tail, you go for it. You're battling the flesh. You're battling the flesh at... 22, and you're battling the flesh at 82. Can we have some testimonies? The flesh doesn't improve. But the flesh here, though, let's change that. I gave you a a way of defining the flesh, but the flesh here is is a bit, using it a little bit different. What Paul's using here is, it's just sort of like the natural way people function. 
And yes, it can get nasty, but it's just also just how people evaluate one another. And can I tell you just, a, I just thought of this this week, and I've had so many unique experiences. Um, sometimes when I, I have these illustrations from my life, I have to be careful with them because they're so like, wow. <laughs> they're like, even as I reflect on them, like crazy, crazy experiences. So <clears throat> when you're stressed, when you're under stress, you might be looking for a way to demonstrate how important you are, right? You want your, you in the military, you want your rank to be acknowledged, right? Or whatever you do to prove who you are. And when you're stressed, you want to differentiate yourself from other people. And you want to, you want to sort of, you know, not, you haven't been treated properly. And so you want to, right, you, you exalt yourself. Well, my, I, was, I was evacuated twice in the early 70s. One time our place of safety was Tehran, Iran. That was our place of safety. We can talk about that later. Amazing city, by the way. And the second time we were, that was the first time we were evacuated. And the second time we were evacuated, about a year later, we were evacuated as Americans, fleeing for a place of safety. And we were evacuated to London, England. How about that? Came out of the desert in Pakistan in December and landed in England in December. Temperature change. So we were in this sort of panicky situation because India and Pakistan had a war going on. And we were fleeing out of this country for our lives, literally. We lived for four days in Karachi at the Intercontinental Hotel. And we would scramble to the airport. And nationals from all around the world who had who wanted to get out of the country, it was a good thing to get out of the country, would scramble at the airport and they would try to buy tickets for planes that would land and the planes would land for like three hours a day and that was it so you'd have planes from all around the world korean airlines or Qantas or all these land in the united states once in a while we'd miss we'd miss the united states planes by the way that's a whole nother story so we're there so as we gather at the airport one day we're there and it were about it was about 15 20 americans i can't remember how many of there were and i'm 14 years old and I'm watching this British man who's looking at all these Americans. This is amazing. Ready? And this British man who sees us in front of him at the counter begins to argue that Brits should have priority over Americans. He begins to try to mount a, a, a defense for why someone from Britain who sort of had been, you know, they'd been in this country and this colonization and they'd, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I'm looking at this guy. And I, and I know what a line is. I know what a line is. It doesn't matter how eloquent this man is. You are in the back of the line. And because you're British isn't going to move you to the front of the line, right? Now, that's, that's, a, that's an illustration. Isn't that, you're all looking at it dismayed, right? That's the flesh. That's the flesh. And Paul is saying as a result of the cross, I'm dismantled. My pride is killed. No matter where I was born, no matter what my ethnicity, my pride has been swallowed up, and I now no longer view people according to the flesh. Now, what's this message to the Corinthians? Well, the Corinthians had found Greek flesh. The the Corinthians had found people that they felt more comfortable with, 
And Paul is saying, you haven't thought more, most, you haven't thought deeply enough, you haven't thought deeply enough about the implications of the cross. And then throughout the history of man, there's always these sort of these noble efforts. You see, we're, people are aware. People are aware of racism, right? They're aware of it. I mean, obviously, there's blindness to it. People, you know, it's, it's a subject that's going on today. People come up with ideas and proposals, ways of acting, codes of conduct. We've got to stop this, right? We've got to treat each other with more love. The European Union, for instance, European Union, they want, they, want, they want to be unified. You know, the Norwegians getting along with the Italians, the Spanish getting along with the Polish. Let's get this all together. Come on, let's get this all together. And so the elites of Europe came up with this idea. Let's have a constitution like, like the United States has and that we're bound together with a common currency, right? You guys know the European Union been around for a while, right? Well, do you know that they have not passed a constitution yet? Do you know they have a monetary system and... That is a little bit shaky, but, but what they have is this, this decree. Now, this is, this is not coming from people who just live regular people. This is coming from the elites. The elites want a, a utopian world. And so the elites came along with this idea of a European Union. Now, here, so what will that fix? That will fix our racism. And there's racism in Europe. So, but they don't have any way of, and they've never been able to bind this, the countries together. That's key. So, in theory, why we, we love everyone, right? In theory, right? Why we're not living according to the flesh, right? This, this is interesting. This is kind of the vapor of Christian thought, right? Floating around Europe. So, what happens is this, is that when, and I just read this in an article, so I use these nations, the French when they want to have a plumber in their house, they're not going to have a Polish plumber who could do it cheaper. They're going to have a French plumber. Now, when it comes right down to it, the utopian quest for treating each other equally and with love, it can't happen without the cross radically humbling the pride of people. That's why it's so unique about Christianity. Christianity, which taught correctly and properly the cross presented to God's people, which is vitally important. God's people are blind to these things. We're not, we don't naturally get these things. And imagine, this has to be taught. This has to be said to Christians. That's, that's, that's kind of an interesting thought. You have to tell Christians. to tell them these things. All right, my point is... That when Paul is saying that we no longer view someone according to the flesh, it is how we normally esteem them, estimate them. And, of course, he mentions this unusual phrase. He says, we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. You see that there? We used to regard Christ according to the flesh. And some scholars have wondered, did Paul actually see Jesus? Did he hear the Sermon on the Mount? Did he see the crucifixion? He puts himself in this idea of actually seeing Jesus as in human form. But he, he quickly says we no longer regard him according to the flesh, meaning that we don't, we don't, we now see him as the king that he is. He is not veiled in in his humanity, and of course the disciples, the disciples, are there and they are just fumbling and bumbling as they follow Jesus, and and they 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 
they don't fully, that they see Jesus essentially in the flesh and they can't quite comprehend his full identity. And it's not until the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter preaching, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls, that their eyes begin to open and they begin to see that he was no mere rabbi wandering the hills of Israel. He is the Lord of glory. So uh, we are making, we're sizing people up, we're estimating them, we are evaluating them. And this is just simply natural thinking, and uh, it is of the old order of things, the old way of thinking. Okay, now look at verse, look at verse seventeen. Another therefore, so layering thought upon th- thought. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. So Paul has used the flesh to represent. The old created order, the old way of viewing people. Now, if you're a believer here today, you, something fantastic has happened in you. You have been made part of the new creation already. The new creation is present within you. You are a new creation in Christ. I don't care what your commanding officer thinks. I don't care what this world thinks of you, how you are esteemed. You are part of the new creation. And verse 17 concludes, old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That beautiful passage in Luke, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4. It says, let light shine out of darkness. Remember that passage, verse 16, verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness in the original creation has now entered into a new creation and he has spoken light into our hearts. God has entered into a new creation. And this is what Paul is expressing. I'm a new creation in Christ. The God who spoke this world into existence spoke life into me. And brought me into the new creation that is in Jesus. The old definition of who I am was left in the grave clothes Jesus left in that tomb that day. You are not what you think you are. You are not who other people might estimate you to be. Our view of ourselves has finally come to an end. Think of the oughts and shoulds that should dominate your life. Do they? Are you on a self-improvement plan? Think of all the oughts and shoulds, the things that you'd like to improve about your life. Well, maybe you want to be more punctual in life. Well, great. Be more punctual. Be more punctual in all your meetings. That's not going to change anything about who you are. In Christ, literally it translates this. Anyone in Christ, behold, new creation. It's just a statement. Anyone in Christ, behold, new creation. All these oughts and shoulds have left, been left behind. We could never obey our way into this new creation. The real person that you are, and this might sound mystical or strange, the real person that you are is in Christ. I don't know how to make that more clear, but that's what verse 17 is, is expressing. Corinthians, where are you? Are you back in the old world of tribalism? Are you back in the 
old, fleshly, typical, tribal, shaped by the standards of the world, part of the old creation. God sees you. How does God presently see you? One more question I want to ask. How does God presently view you? What does God think of you? God sees you in Christ. The fact is, most of us know ourselves only according to the flesh. This is the weight we carry. I'm only as good. I'm only as good as my last performance at work. I'm only as good as the esteem of my boss. I'm only esteemed of the evaluations that I make of myself. I only, I only find my value in what I am producing. And yet we're not looking at the empty grave. And the more we look at the empty grave, the less preoccupied we will be with even something like respect when we walk in a room. I've got all the respect I could ever have in Christ. The, the desire for reputation. Well, have a good reputation. Sure, the book, of, the book of Proverbs says that's a good thing. But all that you could achieve in this life can't at all hold a candle to the reputation that you have borrowed through Jesus. Now let's consider some implications. Consider what Christ did in order to bring about this new way of seeing people. Well, he submitted himself to the evaluation of sinners. Think about that. He put himself there. And he said, have at me. Evaluate me. And they evaluated him in terms of, well, you're not worthy to be part of this city. You're not worthy to be treated as a human being. That's how he submitted himself to their evaluation. He's not enough. He doesn't fit our needs. He was under the evaluation of the flesh, willing that in his body the old things would pass away. That the evaluations of man, all the clamoring, all the demands, all the status-seeking would diminish, would fade away in his body. It would come to die in his body. And he would be willing to present his life under evaluation to his father, Father, before you I live, before you I exist for your glory. And he died and he rose again, and the Father's evaluation is in his rising from the dead. His rising from the dead is his certification that the Father evaluated his life and received his life for sinners. He was condemned in the esteem of the world that we might escape the condemnation of the world. Now, secondly, another consideration, and I'm going to cover this a lot next week. Next week, we're going to talk about counseling, Christian counseling and counseling each other uh, as Paul continues on. I want you to consider Paul as a counselor just for a moment. Think about how he counsels Christians. Can you imagine counseling a fellow Christian with these words? Many of us need to be built up. We need to be strengthened by these words. Our view of ourselves is weighting us down. We need other people to speak into our lives, words of edification, words that build people up. It's a terrible thing when Christians tear one another down, when they view each other after the flesh, when they size someone up according to their personality or their TJTA or their Myers-Briggs or whatever test they're taking, some evaluation Perhaps someone is just struggling in some aspect of their life, and then we evaluate them according to the flesh. Oh, well, you know so-and-so. You know. I mean, 
We roll the eyes and we we discount the work of God in them. They are not what you think they are. And nor are you what they think you are. How about this? Do you sense the liberating power of this? Do you sense the purposes of of God to liberate you from from a constant judgment stance toward people? You can freely embrace people and understand them. Enter into their struggle. Particularly us, the fellow believers among us. Come on. Speak care toward one another. And then thirdly, consider the hope that should be active in us as we interact with fellow believers and non-believers. It's a fantastic thing that's happened, folks. The future is in you. The world to come has already crashed into you. It's in you. That's hopeful. You carry about into the coffee shop or into the cubicle or in your work or carpool. You carry about in you this hope. It's in you. Paul told the Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's in you. There's a hope of a complete renovation of life. Never happened through even if the European Union gets a constitution. Never going to happen. A piece of paper is going to ever get the Polish plumber in that French house. It's never going to work. Well, law has some place, doesn't it? The threat of law, maybe, maybe so. But there's hope for people. There's hope for people. A London businessman was once uh, selling a property. The building had been empty for months and needed repairs, and it had been vandalized, damaged, smashed windows. And he was showing the property to a prospective buyer. And the owner took pains to say that he would replace all the windows and make it in proper order before it was sold. And the buyer said, forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm going to build a completely different building. I don't want the building, I want the site. Compare that with the renovation in mind. What God wants is the sight of your body. He's rebuilding you. He's tearing down the old ways of viewing people. He's causing us to look and see us, ourselves, made in Christ, made as part of the the new renovation of the new heaven and earth. You're signaling this to your friends you're signaling this to your neighbors and your, your church that powerful things are underway. Behold, new creation. The new creation is sitting next to you. Let's change our viewpoint of them and others as well. Let's pray. Now, Father, these are good words. Has the old passed away? Or are we just in this place where we just live with evaluations of people and really even we look at the church and we just define it according to old categories and we've got things all summed up or father have we looked at the cross and seen our death to all that thinking have we found the liberating truth that is there that Jesus came for us And that what we think about ourselves doesn't define us. And from this deep love, we can now begin to view people differently. And so we love you, Lord. 
And we thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.